Lots of new things happening around here. As an aside, I would say that uh, as pastor, we did buy those church cushions. However, if I find anyone so comfortable that they fall asleep, your cushion privileges will be gone, okay? Just if I got to stay awake, you've got to stay awake. This is the deal we've got, so. It's not much to say that 2020 was a strange year. The effects of that strange year continue to resonate even through this one. Our government, for reasons of what they thought was public health, shut down many opportunities for public interactions in 2020, including the ability to shop at certain businesses, which obviously economically impacted those businesses. So, to offset that, both the impact to the businesses and to the employees of those businesses, our government stepped in to provide stimulus and further unemployment to people to help sort of negate the impacts of that. However, This help was of such, I don't know, word to use, staggering nature that many people were and still are hesitant to return to work because they can make the same amount of money watching Netflix or working. The choice is pretty easy. You make that money watching Netflix, at least if you're not a Christian, I think. The one is a problem of motivation. The government has taken the motivation out of work for many people. So what we found is as you go out to certain businesses, it's hard to find help there. It's hard to find servers at restaurants. It's hard to find help for, for businesses that need to provide people to help their customers. It is easier to simply watch Netflix and, create, and collect a check. This is an interesting problem that has surfaced in America, and I don't think it's quite dissimilar to what Paul is somewhat facing here in Romans chapter 6. Jews would have had the same sort of problem with Paul. They would have said, listen, what you are doing in giving this gift of salvation to people is cutting out every single impetus for work. Why should people work to be good? You've just given them salvation. God allows for us to see salvation as the end process of our works. It gives us something to shoot for, something to work for. If you simply tell sinners they're justified, will not they just keep on living in sin? If you hand them salvation for free, where is their work going to come from? What's the motivation? Paul has gone so far as to say that sin increased so the grace of God could increase. It's no wonder that some might say, why not just keep sinning, that God's glory would be better seen. Greeks might likewise have objections to this, although their objections would come at a different angle. They might say, listen, if, if the end goal of humanity is to be a virtuous or a good person, how can you make good people without requiring good living? To cut work out of this makes it impossible to actually have the benefits of good living. It's impossible, they would say, and it leads to virtuous virtueless lives among those who might buy into it. And it's frankly hard not to look around at the state of many Christian churches and many of our own lives and say that there's not something of a truth to that, that we probably don't work as hard as Paul worked when he thought that he had to earn his salvation. We probably do rest on the grace of Christ much more than we ought to when it comes to our personal achieving of holiness. Many claim to be Christian and use that claim to maintain their reckless and unholy living. Many do claim to be Christian and use that claim to justify a life that is free and clear of virtue and good work. The question is, has Paul painted himself into a corner? Like our government's interaction in the lives of businesses and their employees, has his theological 
conclusions had some unforeseen consequences that are now unfortunate and quite negative for those Paul might have sought to help. Fortunately enough, Paul addresses these questions here in Romans chapter 6. And as it turns out, living by faith in Christ not only doesn't allow for one to continue to live unrighteously, it is actually the only true pathway to living righteously before God. Let us read from Paul's inerrant letter to the Romans, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find in the the pocket in the pew in front of you, Romans chapter 6 on page 886 of that Bible. There we read the following words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we, who, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let sin, therefore, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. As we come to these verses, excuse me, as we come to these verses, let us first see the reality of the Christian's life. Let's first see the reality of the Christian's life in verses 1 through 4. Paul begins this section of text by taking on directly the question that probably lingers on a number of Jewish tongues, especially given what he has just written. He said the law was brought in in 520 to increase the trespass in order to ratchet up the trespasses so that God's grace might be seen to be even richer. Why not then keep sinning? Why not then keep trespassing so that God's grace might abound and therefore his glory might abound? And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's that's not how this whole thing works out. That's not what reality is truly about. This ought to make sense to those who are in Christ Jesus, but for those who are outside of Christ Jesus, perhaps you think that sinning is, is the right way to go, but for those who are found in Christ Jesus, this thought is completely untenable, and that's due primarily to our union with Christ. Paul says that those who have been baptized in Jesus were baptized into his death. We joined him in his death when we were plunged beneath that water. That is, the work of baptism does more than just get us wet. It's more than just something that happens to us. But it does actually unify us with Christ. 
And you can read a number of people who would say, well, this is quite clearly talking about some sort of spiritual baptism, but I'm not sure that Paul would have ever in his life separated out baptism in the form of the rite before the church and spiritual baptism. One went with the other. He never talks about spiritual baptism like this. This seems to be baptism. I'm not sure precisely what Paul was thinking here, but baptism is indeed the thing that made someone a Christian. It was the initiation into the church, and by that, even in Paul's own words, the initiation into the body of Christ. It was the rite that all would go through. And it's true that you can point to exceptions, and it's true that people belong to Christ perhaps and should long before they're actually baptized. You can look at the thief on the cross, and you can even talk about the many saints of the Old Testament. But Paul isn't thinking about those. He's thinking about the people in Rome. So when he says, when you were baptized, you were reunited with him, what he means is, as the church has bound you by baptism to Christ, you are now in his body. You are unified with him. And that binding means that the death that Jesus died, he died not only for us, but that we also participate in that death. We die in his death. So then, if we died in his death, we also get to participate in his resurrection by our union with him so that we would walk like Christ, as this wonderful phrase goes, the newness of life. Our union with Christ is an incredibly central and important doctrine. I think that it is the doctrine through which everything else flows. The reason why we are justified, the reason why we are adopted, the reason why we inherit, all of it comes because we are unified with Christ. It's clear here that this union is not some sort of metaphor for how we live our lives. We're not unified with Christ because we emulate what Christ said and did by our lives and thereby show that we're unified with him so that we take the side of the oppressed, or we speak truth to power, or we treat others with kindness, or some other such things. It's, it's not a question of whether we do those or not. We do indeed do those things. We ought to do those things, as Christ has called us to do. But it is not because we conceive of our union with Christ as some kind of metaphorical expression that we are like him. Rather, it's because we are actually unified with Christ. It is a unification that is real, even if it's mystical. I use that word mystical not because I'm going to start chanting later in the service, which may or may not happen. But I use the word mystical because it's hard to explain. How is it that we are truly and really unified with Christ? We're unified with him by faith, but we're not actually told. But nevertheless, Paul speaks of it as though it were real and true sitting before us today. We are indeed, through faith, so united to Christ that we have only, we have rightly died in him, and we are truly raised in him. Paul doesn't make this sound like it's a metaphor. He's saying, this is what reality is for you now. You have a new reality. It's not a metaphor. So if we are bound with him, somehow dead in him and alive with him, then your reality, friend, has substantially changed. Paul couldn't use starker language to talk about this new reality. You died and rose again. This isn't a turning over a new leaf moment. He's not saying, man, you reached the end of your rope and it's time to turn around and really try hard. He's saying, you died in Christ and you are raised in Christ. It is nothing less than the sprouting of new life. It is something that has been done for us. And this wonderful phrase, the newness of life, has a real edge to it. This idea of newness here isn't just that it's something that came up that we might expect. So in the spring, we expect that there will be new flowers, 
okay? But that's not the kind of newness that's being talked about here. This word has this element of sort of an extraordinary or surprising or even a radical newness. It's, it's unexpected. You kind of stand back in awe at the newness of this. Our reality, because of our union with Christ, is radically different from our life before. There is a pre-Christ, a pre-conversion version of you that is wholly different than the version of you that exists today, if you know Jesus Christ. You are radically different as black is from white, as one who is redeemed in Christ is now different from sinners who stand outside of him. One day, during a bus ride to the zoo, walking through a garden, speaking to a friend, Christ changed you. You are not the same person. You died in him, and you were resurrected with him. Some of you know of this sort of radical experience. We have to remember Paul's writing to Romans. These aren't second-generation Christians. These are first-generation Christians. They all would have had this sort of experience, especially the adults. Perhaps there were children who were raised in this this idea, but very few of them would have been. Most of these are adults who would have had this, this grave turning from paganism to Christianity. And there's a lot of folks in here who have never experienced that. You weren't pagans. You, you were raised in Christian homes. And you might think, eh, okay, you, you talk about this like grand change in reality. My change in reality wasn't that stark. I was raised in a Christian home. I had Christian living sort of modeled for me by my parents. They were very faithful people. This sort of change in reality is not something that I've experienced, but I would tell you it is exactly what you experienced. And I was thinking of this. I, uh, you're you're going to have to be patient with me. I thought of the movie Karate Kid, and, uh, and I know that that dates me quite a bit, but the reason why I thought of Karate Kid was because Daniel LaRusso is getting beaten up, right? And he wants to have a way out. And so he's going to take up karate, and Mr. Miyagi is going to take him, and he's going to show him karate. And he's going to teach him, but what he's going to do is he's going to say, to pay me for this, you're going to have to do some chores for me, right? And so he's doing the wax on, wax off thing. He's waxing his car, he's painting his fence. He is going through the motions, He has no idea what those motions mean other than he's paying for something that he thinks is going to happen to him later. He finally gets fed up with this and comes back to Miyagi and says, listen, I've done enough of this stuff for you. It's time that you teach me karate. And Miyagi says, I've been teaching you karate. Right. It's dumb, but then he throws punches and he waxes them off and he waxes them on and he shows that he's... Right? He's knocking the punches aside. He's, He's showing him how this applies to karate. Now, what has happened is... He was going through the motions before, right? Those motions didn't make a lot of sense to him. He didn't know what the meaning of them was. But now he knows. And as a Christian growing up in a Christian home, for a lot of you, you knew what the motions were. You knew what you were supposed to do, how you were supposed to speak, the kinds of things that you were supposed to do during the week. You're supposed to read your Bible, you're supposed to pray, you're supposed to come to church, you're supposed to be kind to people. But when Christ reaches you, all of a sudden, the black and white movie goes to color. All of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi is showing you why you do those things. It's the good of those things that matters. It is the glory of Christ that is found in those things that matters. You're no longer going through the motions, but you're actually doing the Christian life. For others, 
the change is stark as day and night. This is the once I was blind, but now I see it. It's John Newton, a more modern example of somebody like Rosaria Butterfield, where, where you lived a life completely aside from Christ, and then he just changed you in a minute. There are people in this building who have experienced that today. There are people out in the world who still experience this. Regardless of the, the way in which you have experienced, there is a, a version of you that was before Christ and a version of you that was after Christ. There is the BC version of you and the AC version of you, which doesn't make sense. It sounded better in my head when I did the years and now it sounds like air conditioning. But nevertheless, same idea. Before Christ and after Christ, you are now different than you were. Your reality is wholly changed. The old way of life now should be unimaginable to you. And that leads us to our second point, the consideration of the Christian's life. We've talked about the reality of the Christian's life. Now let's, let's talk about the consideration of the Christian's life in verses 5 through 11. Paul drives this point home by simply saying that if we have died with Christ and we were raised with Christ, this happened to us for the very reason that it happened to Jesus. Why did Jesus die for us? Was it to give us an example so that we might know what it means to live life for other people? Well, well, yeah. I mean, that was one of the reasons. We're not going to deny that. Was it simply to demonstrate that God loved us? Again, yes, but not the whole reason why. The central reason why was to pay the penalty for our sin. It was to take death on for us, so that, in Paul's words, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of death might be brought to nothing, so that sin and death would be ended for us. If that was true of Christ, then in our union of Christ with Christ, it ought to be true for us. It's not only that Christ died for our sins, but in sharing in Christ's death, we have also died to sin. And therefore, we live to God. Why was he raised? To show his power over death? Amen. To free us from death forever? Yes. To free us from death is the same thing as to free us from sin. This is a two-headed monster that works its way throughout all of Paul's writing. Where sin is found, death is close behind, and where death was found, sin is near. To defeat sin and death is to stand over them forever, always freed of them. The ultimate thing that sin brings to you is death. It is the ultimate final weapon that sin has. It is the ultimate final payment. And if in Christ you have been raised from the dead, if death has no hold over you anymore, Paul argues, then neither does sin. So if Christ has died to sin and lives to God, our union with him means that both of these things should be our reality as well. Paul finishes this by saying, you should consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. Consider that for just a minute. Just think about these things. Our particular group of Christians and the tradition that we stem from has a particular way of praying, of speaking, and of thinking of ourselves primarily as sinners. This is good. It's right and true. Paul has spent earlier, the better part of three chapters trying to convince us of this. And because we read Paul, and we understand Paul, and we agree with Paul, we rightfully stand up and say, we are sinners. We, we, are, we are people who are not just fallen, we're not just broken people, but we actively go against God's commands. In our thoughts, and our actions, and our words, and our deeds, we fight against God. And we still do, even lingering things today that show 
that we are still sinful. So we are biblical in that, just as 1 John 1.8 says, if anyone says that they have no sin, then they are deceiving themselves, and the truth is not in them. So at no point in time are we to stand back and say, no, 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 we're not sinful. We have no sin. John says that you are a fool. You're deceiving yourselves. But we also must consider, we must consider the change of reality that Paul has been talking about. That you were dead and are alive. That Christ died to sin so that you would die to sin. And he lives to God so that you would live to God. If you have really been freed from sin, as Paul has said, then we should not just consider ourselves as sinners, but we ought to consider ourselves as saints. Listen to how Paul talks in Romans 5 eight, an important verse, an incredibly influential verse. Our kids sang this at VBS. It's a good verse. And given the present discussion, what word sticks out to you here? Chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. The implication of those words is, you've stopped now. Now, I'm not going to ride that horse so hard as to say that you can achieve perfection. I am going to ride it far enough to say that you should conceive of yourself and think of yourself as a saint. When Paul addresses the church, how does he address them? Think of Corinth. Corinth had people in it that were incredibly prideful, overwhelming in their pride. They had factions everywhere. They allowed for sexual immorality to run rampant in their midst. They, they thought that they were better than the outside world. They had problems up and down. And the very first words that Paul speaks to them are words calling them saints to the saints in Corinth. We rightly lambast Catholic people for saying that there's like a level of sainthood up there. You've got to do three miracles. The Pope's got to give it to you. And we're like, no, we're all saints. But then we never call one another that. We only talk about one another as though we're sinners. And Paul's whole point here is that you're not just sinners anymore. There is a level of holiness that you ought to have in your life. Consider, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to take just a moment to do a PSA for community groups. If you're not in a community group, you should be. I think these things are incredibly helpful if you were a member of this church. I love our community group. I think it's very helpful to sit down with other people, to open up the scriptures, to read them, to study them, to think about them. I was really helped. The first week we went through Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, we came across this particular question in our study guide. Redmond asked, The believers who comprise this church, that is Ephesus, are identified as saints who reside in Ephesus. He goes on to ask, how should a local congregation view itself in light of what saints means in relationship both to the Lord and to fellow believers? And I don't know who said it. Somebody can stand up right now and take credit if they're here. But somebody in our group said, it seems like we ought to have the expectation that people would be righteous. And instead of it catching us by surprise that, that they do righteous things, it should rather catch us by surprise that we're ever doing sinful things. And I don't think that's where we are. 
I, I, I just think that we, we only have like one frequency to talk on, and that is sinfulness. That we, we talk like we're sinners in Christ. We talk as though we are sinful through and through. We sing songs like that, which is good and true and right, but there has to be balance. We need to consider our salvation. If you have died to sin in Christ and you live to God in Christ, ought you not be holy before him? To put this another way, has Christ not provided you with everything you need to be holy before the Lord? Is there something else that he needs to do for you? The the quick and short answer to that is yes. He needs to resurrect you. And that is amen and true. But that doesn't mean that you don't strive to be holy. And it doesn't mean that you don't do things right before God now. Paul speaks in this way. We should plead for these things in prayer for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. I think that sometimes we think of speaking of ourselves as sinners increases the glory of God, and indeed it does but it can also diminish the power of God in remaking us. We ought never do that. Paul is being very forceful here. He's saying, listen, you were dead, now you're alive. And he goes on then to say that you ought to press that into your life. That brings us to our third and final point this morning, the offering of the Christian's life. The offering of the Christian's life. Paul says it again very forcefully. Do not let sin reign in you. Don't let sin reign in you. If everything that he has spoken of is true, if your reality truly has been changed and you truly do consider and understand what has happened to you and what Christ has done for you, then there ought to be an objective change in how you act. The presenting language here, where he says that you are not to present your members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That presenting language is used of religious service. It comes up again, famously, in Romans 12, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the means of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that you are to walk up to the altar and present them to the altar. Not as a sacrifice like the old sacrifices, which were always dead, but you are to continually live before God as a sacrifice for holiness and righteousness. This is how you are to offer yourself, continuously presenting yourself before God. He says your members, probably talking about both the members of your body, your physical body itself, do not present your mortal bodies, right? So he's talking about your body. But then when he talks about members, it's hard not to think of also just one another as members of the body of Christ. So you are to be righteous in and of yourself. You are to do the things that God has said are right and good and true yourself. Be holy yourself. But the church as a collective whole ought also to be holy. We are always to be presenting ourselves to God. These things are often taken in the form of death. We are to be living sacrifices, but that doesn't mean that we don't continually strive to kill ourselves by the cross of Jesus Christ. We continue to, in the words of Owen, mortify the flesh. We kill the flesh so that Jesus Christ and his righteousness might live in us. If we don't consider our lives rightly, I wonder if that is part of the reason why we don't 
offer ourselves toward these sort of good works, toward these sort of righteous acts. I feel like the wrong consideration, the continually talking about ourselves as sinners, does two things for us. First, I think it can embolden our sin because I think that it excuses our sin. If we only have constantly placed before us the fact that we are sinners, this over time becomes a reality. If the only thing you're ever told is that you are a sinner, not just before Christ saved you because you had no hope of saving yourself as a sinner, but even after Christ saved you, if the only thing that you can ever think of yourself is that you are a sinner through and through, then that sinks in as your reality. Why fight? Why fight against nature? If I am simply just a sinner still, even after what Jesus has done for me, after being unified with him, what is my, my purpose, my fight, my goal in living a good life? I can't do it. It emboldens our sin. It makes it available to us, and we start to act that very thing out. It does so precisely because it can lead to excuses. I wonder if we like to remind ourselves of our sinful nature and our predilection for sin sometimes simply as an excuse for sin. You know, this is just who I am. We can look at other people and we can say, hey, you're a sinner too, right? We're all sinners. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Which is funny because every time somebody says something like that, it's always about casting the first stone at them, right? But Jesus said that about somebody else. You're not perfect and neither am I. I'm sure because I do it at times. I think that we probably all do it. We have an angry outburst. We have a selfish response. We give somebody a look that is meant to antagonize them. We leave people out or we cut people in solely because of the good that we gain from it and not what is good for them. We do these things. When confronted with them as Christians, we hopefully rightly ask for forgiveness. But I'll ask, friends, do you do these things and ask for forgiveness all the while thinking that, well, this is all as we should expect. After all, I'm a sinner. Friends, we have this sort of daily choice placed before us to daily, before God, to daily, before men, render service to him with who we are. To present ourselves as a means of righteousness in this world, as instruments that bring forward righteousness. Not just righteousness in our own lives, but as Christ will one day show the open righteousness of God and justice of God for all people, do we do the same? Do we seek to make this a more just society together? Just as we are walking faithfully in holiness, each, each of us individually. I was convicted about all this this week. And here, specifically not concerning my own sin, although that's only because this week was a different week for me, given next week it might be about my sin, but in our emphasis of it, I was just really caught by that. We have membership classes, and in our membership classes, I take time to make sure that every person who comes into this church is aware that this church is filled with sinful people. And that when you enter into this church, you are going to have people sin against you. That's, that's the nature of it. I, I don't go as far as to say let's 
that's par for the course, because we don't want it to be par for the course, but I do kind of implicate this is, this is going to happen, right? You're going to have somebody say something to you they shouldn't. You're going to have somebody act out in ways that they ought not. You're going to have people sin against you. It's not going to be, it's not going to be an accident. It's not going to be they backed into your car on accident. Right? Hopefully it's not that they backed into your car on purpose, but nevertheless, there will be times when they sin against you. I set up that expectation. I, I don't think that I've ever said in coming here, you ought to expect that the saints who are here will walk in righteousness. I mean, we set up that expectation. We want people to walk in righteousness. We want them to walk in holiness. How many times do we actually call them saints? How many times do we warn people of the righteousness that ought to be found here? And that probably, frankly, is found here. Why are we so bashful about that? You're righteous people. God has worked in you. You've seen the fruit of your lives. Hopefully, most of you can think of the things that you have benefited from by reading Scripture, by hearing sermons, by hearing the words of other friends and and encouragement that comes from other believers in this place, and you've seen the Spirit of God work in you to make you holy. Why be bashful in talking about that kind of stuff? Paul says we ought to walk forward in that. I wonder sometimes if the way in which we can only talk about one another being sinful doesn't aid and abet our own sinfulness. Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you. That does not mean there will be a day when Jesus resurrects you, when you will stand holy before God and sin will not have any dominion over you. Given how closely he has connected us with Christ already, he means that here and now. That you are not under the power and sway of sin, that he has set you free from sin, which is what he is going to go on to say in chapter 6. Does this mean that we are free and clear? No. Paul is going to argue in chapter 7 as well that we still have sinful issues in our lives. The flesh still clings close. We still have battles to do, but you can win those battles. Does that mean you win all of them? No, but you can. The Spirit is given to you. Christ has died for you. Fight, fight, fight. So what do you offer to the Lord each day? Every thought, every deed, every word, consider them carefully. Every morning be praying that this is a day that the Lord has set aside for you to walk in righteousness and holiness, to make this world a more righteous place. Even if it's small, and insignificant. Work at it. Practice it. Not just in your own personal life, but in your interactions with other people. Be righteous and know full well that praying such things does not mean you're giving it over to the Lord. It's a let go and let God type thing. You're saying, hey, I prayed about righteousness, but it ain't happening today. No. Christ has died for you. It's happening today, people. Be righteous. Work hard to bring righteousness to light in all of your actions. Don't use sin and your sinful nature as an excuse. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. I would often use the word here, render. It's a service that you render. I mean that in two ways. First, it's a service that you render because you are giving it over to God. You're saying, I'm going to live this way because of the change that you have wrought in me, 
because of the glory I see in Jesus Christ, because of the newness of life found in me, I will provide my mortal body for your use to bring righteousness to this world and to have holiness in me. I render that service. But you also likewise render in the way that computers render images. They make images. In offering this kind of service, you also render the image of Jesus Christ. This is why we do good things. Because in doing good things, in walking in holiness and righteousness before God, in seeking the good of other people, we picture what Jesus Christ is like. This is why it's so terribly important that Christians walk forward in holiness. We are saints. We are set aside for the work of Jesus Christ, called to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we ought to walk in them. So walk in them. Image Jesus Christ rightly, truly, and correctly, knowing that there is forgiveness when you fail. But the expectation is that you won't. Christ has done great things for you, friends. Yes, part of that great thing is to forgive you, but it's also to make you new again. Here is the great work of Christ, not simply to give you a pass on your sins, but to make you righteous and holy to take what is broken and to heal it, to take what is marred by sin and make it beautiful again. That doesn't start in the eschaton. That starts at baptism. That starts at conversion, and it continues to this day. So pursue that holiness. Present yourselves to God and render righteous service to him. Perhaps there are those in here who aren't believers and think, that, that's not a bad plan. I think maybe righteous living is good for me. And, and what I will do is I will simply walk forward, achieving righteousness on my own. I'll, I'll try a little bit harder. I'll put a little bit more effort in. I'll turn that leaf over and over and over again. The reality is you can't. There is a stark difference between an unbeliever and a believer. An unbeliever does have a broken and sinful nature. A believer has that nature repaired by the work of Jesus Christ. An unbeliever cannot possibly render righteous things to God, even when their priorities line up with the priorities of God. In denying that Jesus Christ is truly the Christ of God, in denying that he is God incarnate, you you cannot render righteous service and do so while denying the very God that would judge that as righteous. It is impossible. By denying Christ, you defame God, and nothing that you do would ever be right before him. But again, there is good news. Jesus Christ is wonderful, he is glorious, he is kind, and he is compassionate, and he is willing to forgive your sin. My friends, this morning, trust in him, both you sinners and you saints. Live righteously before him, for if Christ is risen, so are we. Let us pray. Lord, what great love you have given to us that we might share in both Jesus' death and life. We are indeed sinful and unable to stand before you on our own. And yet Christ is good enough to heal what is broken in us. May your word push us to pursue holiness passionately that righteousness might fill the earth. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.